everyone, thank you so much for joining us today for episode 12 of season 3 of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Volan, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama, and I work, we work, in the Institute for Communication <laughs> Research or the ICIR at UA. So, Kim, I feel like one of those popular interview questions is if you were going to sit down and have breakfast with a famous person in history or from history, who would that be and why? And thankfully, I have never <laughs> been in an interview because I have zero, absolutely no idea of how I would answer it. So, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you that question. Thank you. I mean, I think it's a good one. And that brings us to one of our main topics of conversation with today's guest, Dr. Diane Bragg, and that's history. And we don't, well, I don't anyway, often think about communication history or how communication relates to history. Uh, but spoiler, it does. Well, I have to admit, I learned so much from today's guest, and I feel like I should have learned way more about this topic at some point along the line, especially when I was in college. Um, despite being a journalism major, I never had to take journalism history or media history. My loss for sure, especially after talking with today's guest. Well, as someone who has gone back and gotten another degree after my PhD, I'm just going to put it out there. It's not too late to go back and take that uh, journalism history class. <laughs> I'm not really suggesting that. <laughs> but, right, I mean, I, I took classical rhetoric um, and actually I took math comm law, which is really history oriented. And that's something else that Dr. Bragg talks about with us today. And as we reflected on our conversation with today's guest, it brought to mind how so many historical issues like the role of the Black press during the Civil War, are playing out now, just in different contexts. Yeah, and in our conversation, we also learn about how, how to do historical research and how findings from research in this area really help us better understand what's going on with media right now. So you have to listen to this conversation. I promise we're all learning so much. For sure. So let's give a very warm welcome to Dr. Diane Bragg, an associate professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media right here at the University of Alabama. Welcome, Diane. Thanks so much for joining us today, Diane. We are thrilled to be able to catch up with you. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So, Diane, I was thinking about a time when you were a featured speaker for a co-sponsored event between AJMC and C-SPAN. And I remember just vividly being there because it seems like, <laughs> wow, it may have been 10 years ago. It may have been three years ago. But you gave right. a talk that was titled reporting in a hostile political environment. And I remember attending that event thinking, this is so, so cool because you're representing our department and the college and the university so well. But what was it like for you, that, that whole speaking 
event was packed with people and also C-SPAN was there. It was really interesting. We, um, I was very excited about that panel. I had some really good people um, lined up for that. And scheduling wise, we ended up, you know, like one of the last sessions on the last day. And I was a little disappointed <laughs> by that because you never really know um, what you're going to get. Um, now, that particular year, the conference was in Washington, D.C., which was great. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did not find out. I got an email, I believe it was, like the night before that C-SPAN wanted to film our panel. And so, I mean, you know, I was immediately like, oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, that's great. But, oh, wow. I hope <laughs> we have some people show up. And I hope, you know, it goes well. And, um you know, I, I reached out to all of my panelists just to let them know um, so that everyone would not be surprised by cameras. And right, because, you know, right. at the conference, that's not normal at the conferences. And so uh, it went really well, I thought. And um, we did have a number. We immediately, of course, started spreading the word. You know, C-SPAN is going to be there. And I think actually even AJMC might have tweeted something out. So we did end up with a nice crowd, which I was very grateful for. And uh I felt the panel was really good and I felt like the topic was very important and we really got into some things about women journalists and what they were facing at the time from people, you know, especially through social media and dangerous things. And we had Mike Dorning was there um, and he is an editor and I'm trying to think if he's still with Bloomberg right now, I think he is. And, um, He was really, uh, it was great him talking about how he tried to support his female reporters and saying they face things that male reporters absolutely do not face on Mm -hmm. social media and emails and things like that. So it was, I thought it was a great moment um, and I think it it turned out really well. It did. It did for sure. I feel like that's going to lead us into some additional questions, but (laughs) (laughs) as always. To uh, get to know you a little bit better, and we'll do a little rapid fire section of our podcast to learn who you are. Okay. uh, Diane, can you tell us and our listeners where you are from? Oh, well, yes, I tell everybody where I'm from. I'm from (laughs) Memphis. I have it on bumper stickers on my car. So, yes, I am a University of Memphis Tiger, although roll tide at the same time, right? But um, I was born and raised in Memphis. I actually raised my children there. Um, I have two degrees from the University of Memphis. I owe a great debt to that school as um, a woman who went back to school with children. And um, that's a whole very important part of my, my life doing that. And so um, I like to point out to other people that no one else knows what barbecue really is, no matter what they say, they're wrong. So, so that's a little bit about me right there. <laughs> How long have you been at the University of Alabama? You know, I moved to Tuscaloosa in 2006 and uh, I came here uh because my husband had taken a job here. And so um, we um, moved here at the time and I had been working at the University of Memphis and had considering considered working on a PhD, but I already had two degrees from there. And I had looked into University of Mississippi uh, because it wasn't that far from my house, um, but nothing really mm-hmm. panned out. And when I knew I was coming here, I thought, well, you know, 
this doors opened and I came and I met with Jennings Bryant and uh, a number of other people and decided to apply. And so moved here in 2006 and started working on my, uh, my doctorate and been here ever since. Yes. And then what, um, tell our listeners what you teach. Well, I teach uh, several things, but my two primary courses for undergraduate, like juniors and seniors, is the Mass Comm Law class, Media Law. And uh, that's a wonderful class, very strongly focused on First Amendment. And um, I throw in a lot of history there because history is my area. Mm -hmm. And the other class that I teach uh, regularly is the uh, graduate seminar on uh, journalism history. And I do that for on-campus students. And we also have our online masters now, the distance learners. And I help design that course. And so I teach that also. Nice. Occasionally, yeah, occasionally I get a JCM 180, which is an introduction to journalism for freshmen, Mm -hmm. which is totally the opposite end (laughs) of what my other two classes are. Um, (laughs) But it's fun. And I have found with that class, I often develop some relationships that I end up following those kids all the way through their graduation and maybe on to graduate oh. school. So that's a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So what did the young Diane think she would be doing when she grew up? So young Diane, first of all, said she would never get married and have children, which is why I have three sons. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, your younger self doesn't always really know what she's talking about. Um, but I, I really <laughs> Did not know what I wanted to do, except, and this is interesting, this has been pointed out to me from friends, I loved school. I always loved school. Like getting my book bag and lunchbox every fall (laughs) was the highlight of my year. And so um, in the summer, I would miss school. And so I would round up the neighborhood children into one of the rooms in my house and we would play Play school. school. (laughs) And I was always the teacher. I was always the teacher. And um, how I got them to do that, I have no earthly idea. But um, so maybe that was a little bit present thinking about, you know, what I might end up doing. Um, But here I am. Yeah. Did you make them bring a lunchbox? Yeah. You know, we didn't, but we did have Kool-Aid snacks. We did that because we always had Kool-Aid. Yes. And red Kool-Aid, which we now know no one should ever drink, but I drink it by the gallon. So, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Do you have a bag now? Do I have? Well, yes. Actually, a book bag. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes. So, I do. Actually, I have several. Um... (laughs) My favorite one that I carry a lot right now is one that I uh, picked up actually in, um, it's a Kath Kidston bag from, uh, I got it in Dublin, Ireland when my son was doing a study abroad and it's got little birds all over it. And my claim to fame is that some of the royal family use them, uh, similar things for their diaper bags, but whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I'll show it to you next time I see you. Yeah. (laughs) Please do. I also have some more sophisticated, like black leather ones, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, want to shift a little bit and get into the scholarship that you do? Can you give us an elevator pitch of your research and scholarly work? Yes. Um, so, I, it's really interesting. I kind of fell into this uh, when I came to Alabama. I'd always loved history, and there was a history of journalism course that David Sloan taught. And so I signed up for that. 
I will tell you this little story. Um, when I was looking at the course list and looking at that class, someone else who uh, w- was at the school was looking at it with me, um, someone who worked there. And they kind of leaned over to me and said, I don't know if you want to take that or not. It's really hard. <laughs> and so I didn't really know how to respond to that. <laughs> like, were they saying I wasn't smart enough or I, I don't really know, but um, I, I went ahead, I plunged right in and um, it ended up really setting me on the path of what I do right now. My cognate was in history. And so my focus has ended up, I've done some work on the black press, but primarily really the antebellum press leading up to the Civil War. Um, so 1820, 1840 on up to 1861. And um, that would be where the majority of my research has been done. But I've also done some on um, some women journalists from the late 19th century, um, Nellie Blind, some people like that. But, but I would say basically 19th century is where I am. So tell us if you had to come up with a headline for one of your more interesting findings, what, what might that be? Well, (laughs) you wouldn't think this would be it, but sometimes today you need to say it. Slavery caused the civil war. Yes. So, you know, that, that, that shouldn't be something surprising or, sensational but apparently it is so yeah okay so has this headline tell us about the findings from where this headline has come from well i did research on um antebellum newspapers across the north and the south looking for topics of dissension uh between the two areas and uh that was really what ended up being my dissertation and i've ended up delving into different parts of that a lot deeper um the Wilmot Proviso, which we won't go a whole lot into, but uh, just some seminal moments where, um, you know, you knew that things were headed in a certain direction. And uh, at one point, there was a gag order in, in Congress. They couldn't even bring up the word slavery, could not be talked about. And then this Wilmot Proviso happened, which kind of brought it to the forefront. And one of the things that I did, I was reading about it in newspapers, and they really picked up on that. Um, And it continued on through into the war, um, where if you were someone who supported the Wilmot Proviso, the South, you know, really looked down on you. And um, I went back to the congressional record, which is so great now. We have access today to so many um, records online, but went into that and found that the year before that, slavery had not been mentioned at all on the floor of Congress. And the next year it was like 70 something times. And that just, the the floodgates opened. And um, so it was just interesting to see. There were other areas that came up in these news stories, but all of them had some sort of tie to slavery, um, no matter what it was. And so those were kind of my findings. That's Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So tell us and tell our listeners, like, what does research, the historical research look like? What are like, what are you, what are you doing when you're doing, like I'm putting quotes in around doing, but what, what is research? You know, reading is so much of it. I mean, that's, um, and, you know, there are different content analysis is a type of historical research where people look for, you know, keywords and how often those appear and that kind of thing. And that's very important. But with really in-depth journalism, qualitative research, 
you really have to read the stories. You also have to, you know, look at the placement of an article. Where is it? Is it on a front page? Is it buried inside? Um, how prominent is the headline in the deck? All that kind of things. And so it's not something where you can just look up keywords and say, how often does this appear? And so I would say that the number one thing is reading and taking things in context, always paying attention to the context of the paper you are looking at mm. it is in and what is happening at the time. Mm. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask another question here. So I think a lot of times when we think about research in a kind of experimental way, we, we always talk about being an expert in the literature and right. What I hear here is like, you've got to be not only an expert in like what you're, what you're looking for, like methodologically and how you're doing it, but my goodness, you have to know like all of the history around what you're looking for. And that's, yes. that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of reading. That's what it I'm It is a lot today. of reading. It is. Um, and, you know, I was very, very fortunate when I was doing my doctoral studies. Um, I took three classes over in the um, history department at University of Alabama, which is a wonderful department. And I was fortunate, Dr. George Rabel, who is a premier mm -hmm. Civil War historian, um, was there. And so I took a Southern literature class with him and we literally read in this one semester, 15 books, wow. not, oh, not parts of goodness. books and not, some of them were small, some of them were large, but it was 15 books. And um, we would have to do comparison writings on those and have discussion. And there was no way in that seminar to come in and not have read thoroughly um, the readings that were assigned. And of course, Dr. Rabel knew them, you know, backwards and forwards. That really um, sort of honed my reading discipline when it came to research. And uh, after that, I took a class with Dr. Rothman, who I believe is now chair of that department. Um, and I did a, a paper for his class that zeroed in on Tennessee newspapers um, in the year leading up to the war and then up until Tennessee pretty much fell to the Union and reading all types of newspapers. I had to actually at the time, because they weren't all online, I had to go to um, uh, Tennessee, go to Nashville and go to Memphis to to look at papers there and, you know, order microfilm, all those kinds of things that now so much of it is online. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was a really great experience on just immersing myself in this small sort of section or period of the time. And um, it, it, I don't know, that that's, I, I took a lot away from those classes. It really helped me tremendously in honing my skills there. Okay. So, I mean, everything that you're saying sounds absolutely fascinating, but what I'm kind of taking away is there's a great opportunity for there to be tremendous application of the work that you do. And, and it can come in the form of what you do in the classroom, but I feel like what you're doing is something everybody needs to know and, and hear about. Is there, can you talk about the application of your work and whether it's um, specific to our discipline or other disciplines, or if you're thinking about the public, can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I think part of the problem we are having today with media literacy and understanding science, you know, things that maybe people are not well versed in. But the problem is you don't have to go into something being well versed. You just have to be willing to look at the experts in that area and read and learn about things. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a resistance to doing that, to to instead just listening, listening to sound bites and, and things like that, instead of doing your own research, which is so much easier to do today right. than it was. I mean, I tell my students all the time, like in media law, in the journalism history class, it's like, if you want to go, you know, read about a case that the Supreme Court, um, you know, made a decision on in 1960, you can, there are like a number of sites, you don't even have to just Google it, uh, go to particular sites that give you the transcript, tell you the decisions. When we used to have to go to the library, you know, and you, ha- you used to have right. to find, you know, in that Supreme Court casebook, you know, and read those things and after you found them. It's just so much easier to do that today. And one of the things I try to do in the media law class, because those are undergraduates, even though they're juniors and seniors, is um, I do bring in a lot of history. We spend probably the first quarter to a third of the class looking at the history of how we came to what we believe today about free speech. And yeah, all the cases that, and there are so many things they have never heard of and aren't aware of. And the idea that the, the bill of rights originally as a country, we didn't really think the bill of rights applied to all the States, you know, and the fact that we now think that we have this doctrine that says that, that a state Mm -hmm. can't take away a right that you have, Mm -hmm. you know, at the federal level as a United States citizen, um, that, that wasn't something people originally thought. And so um, I think that the skills that I've learned and hopefully the things that I bring out in the classroom and just in my life in general are about being willing to learn, being willing to read, being willing to look at context. And I think we would all do a whole lot better if we could do that more. <laughs> Agreed. Yes, definitely. And I'm thinking about, okay, so I'm going to ask you to put on like a, a hat that goes into the future. But when when you're talking about history, I mean, I'm thinking about right now and what, what people 20 years from now are going to be reading mm-hmm. out like right now. And how do you how do you know, or what do you think is going to happen with respect to like credibility? Like, so you talked about media literacy and being willing to listen to experts. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there's a lot of non-experts out there that have a platform. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are. (laughs) Add up and and how, what what do you, what do you think? You know, I mean, I think the future is kind of what we see even now. Um, So when we think about the Spanish flu, you know, just recently before we had COVID come out, there were some historical works that came out about that period in time and about how people resisted, um, you know, masking. And and really, at that point in time, people really, doctors and nurses weren't really even washing their hands the way they should have. We've learned so much over the past 100 years. And so... I think that, I don't know that it'll be 20 years, but maybe 50 years, (laughs) people will look back and say, what were they thinking? Or, you know, but then 
I think something else in the future will come up that will create some of the same problems. Um, I think we often have um, people in society who are disgruntled or unhappy or argumentative or whatever, sometimes for legitimate reasons. Um, And because of that, they take certain stands without really contemplating the consequences of those stands and then they get dug in Mm. and there's really not much historically you can see there's really not much you can do about that um i am right now i'm going to admit this publicly i can't believe i'm doing this but um so for a conference in a few weeks i have been reading gone with the wind for the first time in my life (laughs) Now, I've seen the movie. I've seen it a lot of times. And I know all the things that are wrong with that movie. I still love that movie, but I know all the things that are wrong with it. And I acknowledge that. And I really didn't know going into the book, you know, what it, because it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, mm-hmm. And and definitely there are things in the book that are uncomfortable and I are really just so, you know, inappropriate but it's historically i think meant very accurate and the descriptions of the people and the way they felt and the way they dug in Hmm. and so i i think you know 50 years from now 100 years from now they'll be digging in about something else (laughs) no matter what the facts tell them you know And, and what i hear is like history is really important and maybe we need to be learning more about it you know, learning more about history and learning how to do history. Mm-hmm. Like in in high school, students shouldn't just be reading their history book. I literally had a senior level American history teacher who sat on a stool after lunch every day and read the book to us. That was my oh, history class. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to see more um more students do actually doing history and Mm -hmm. so sort of applying that and um i think that would be very helpful but we just don't have that going on in most to be honest with you not only in most high schools in in many universities and colleges either so true so and we're going to shift gears on you just a little bit um i know when you were in your doctoral program you had an opportunity to overlap with Dr. Jennings Bryant. I did. I was wondering if um, you had a great Jennings story or if you can tell us about a class that you might have taken from him or an interaction you had. We would love to hear hear a Jennings story from you. Yeah. So um, he, you know, sort of shepherded me, shepherded me into the program, and I ended up taking an entertainment theory class with him. And uh, it was a wonderful class. And what was great about Jennings was that he really wanted you to follow your own interest, whatever that might be. And he would, you know, you we had to choose a topic to, to research. And he knew that I loved to read. I loved books. And so I ended up doing, um, he got me into doing a paper on missed female mystery writers, which um, I know. And so uh, it ended up just being this great paper. Um, I got it accepted at a conference and presented it, uh, but it came out, well, it kind of started with Edna Buchanan, who had been a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Miami Herald and went on to write um, books that were sort of crime 
mystery kind of things. And I loved her work. And so he sort of expanded it and said, well, you should read this and this. And why don't you write about them? And I ended up actually able through a friend to interview Edna Buchanan over the phone which wow. was just so amazing um, to be able to talk to her. And um, so I, I, I loved that about him. He had a, just a witty sense of humor. I mean, he was fun to be in the classroom with. Uh, he treated everyone with respect and listened to some really stupid ideas from all of us with <laughs> grace. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, uh, he, I hated when he retired, but at the same time, I was I was happy for him when he was able to retire because I think he got to go enjoy his tractor, and yep. I know that was a really important thing for him. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So, Diane, I want to I want to kind of ask you to think about your area of research and and how you bring that in the classroom and kind of all together. What, what do you think, um, or what do you, what are you looking forward to or something that excites you about the future of your discipline? Oh, wow. Um, I, I really, I'm, I'm hopeful about history and the humanities in general. Uh, I, right now they, there's been kind of a downturn in that in, um, university education, but I think what has happened over the last year or so, uh, has sort of made people realize that it's important for people to study history and to understand how to, to do this type of research. So I, I'm hopeful about that and that we will see more interest in it. I'm really grateful. You know, University of Alabama is one of the few programs at the master's level that does require a history class. Hmm. Uh, not all of them do that. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's really important because we have students come in for a master's in journalism who have not taken a media history or journalism history class at the undergraduate level. And so a lot of this is new to them. And so I, I'm very hopeful about the future when it comes to historical study. Um, You know, we tend to, be cyclical in some ways, you know, but I'm hoping it'll come back and there will be more money put into that type of research. Um, I understand completely the importance of the science and math and engineering. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Those are very important areas, but not to the detriment of the humanities. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's a place for both of them. And I think they make people well-rounded and maybe understand each other a little bit more. And so um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but th- yeah. that's my hope for the future. I like it. I like it too. And I, I like hope. I like yeah. optimism. We're in a time yeah. where we need that. We are definitely. <laughs> so Diane, I feel like we could ask you 39 additional questions, but we are <laughs> at the point of this um, episode where we are going to do the rapid fire finish with one, hopefully very fun question. Okay. We have had um, a bit of a hiatus of in-person conferences. Yes. So keeping that strain of hope and optimism, what academic conference are you looking forward to attending in future when we return to them? Oh my goodness. So 
I was supposed to have one in two weeks in Chattanooga that I love so much, and it's going to have to be virtual again. So I'm disappointed about that. But the next one on my radar is that ICA in Paris. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I, and I know I am not alone in that. You are okay, not there's a lot alone. of us. We yes. Can, we yes. can concur you are not alone. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think we're going to be having a reunion of all the podcast guests because everyone has said ICA. So <laughs> We should all get together, hopefully, in Paris, right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, Diane, I just want to thank you for spending some time with us today, telling us a little bit more about your experiences while you were here um, as a graduate student and then what you're doing now. It's been so great to catch up with you. Well, I've enjoyed being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you.